Good morning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 33. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will drink, or what you will eat, or what you will wear, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Oh, what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. The word of the Lord. Have you ever heard the saying, religious people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good? The idea is that religious people, and especially Christians, are so preoccupied with escaping this world and going to heaven that they're just apathetic about this world. They don't care about the poor or fighting injustice or addressing oppression. They don't care about making this world a better place. So um, all they care about is, is saving souls and going to heaven when they die. So for instance, during the years leading up to the Civil War, there was a huge debate among Christians about the issue of slavery. Many Christians were abolitionists, but many other Christians had a doctrine. It was called the spirituality of the church. That doctrine said that the, the church is really only concerned with inward spiritual matters, not with outward political matters. And many used that doctrine to say, look, slavery is a political issue, not a spiritual issue. Therefore, the church shouldn't get involved. Many historians have pointed out that that was the beginning of the end of the church's credibility in this country. In fact, a hundred years later, during the Civil War, uh, the Civil Rights Movement, many churches again refused to get involved because it's just too political. And you realize, of course, we're having the same debate again right now. So here's the big question. Is the gospel all about saving souls and getting people into heaven? Or does the church have a responsibility to help make this world a better place? It's a huge question. 
And this passage we just read helps us with answers. Last week, I mentioned that many people have criticized what Jesus says in this passage because they feel like he's telling poor, oppressed people not to care about their poverty or oppression, but simply to focus on God and, hey, don't worry about all that other stuff. But when we really dig into what Jesus is saying here, we realize he's telling us something very different. What is it? We're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching his disciples um, about becoming transformed people who bring transformation to the world. So last week, we looked at what this passage shows us about becoming transformed people. This week, we're going to look at what it shows us about transforming the world. And it all um, comes down to verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If we want to understand what it means to transform the world, then we have to understand what does Jesus mean when he says, seek the kingdom of God. Let's find out what that means by seeing three things this morning. We're going to see the story of the kingdom, the substitute story of the kingdom, and the embodiment of the kingdom. The story, the substitute story, and the embodiment of the kingdom. All right? First, the, sub, uh, the story of the kingdom. Jesus was constantly talking about the kingdom of God, but what does that even mean? Any um, first century Jewish person in his audience would have known immediately what this means, um, because in many ways the story of the kingdom is the main storyline of the whole Bible. And we could tell that story in four acts. Act one, creation. You know, every story has a setting. This is the setting for the story. God created the heavens and the earth. He created this physical, material world. And perhaps most importantly, he created it all good. In fact, when he was all done, it says, behold, it was very good. The setting of the story is a world created good. But every good story has a problem or a conflict that needs to be re re resolved. And that leads to the second act of the story, rebellion. One day, the first humans rebelled against God. Instead of trusting and loving and serving God, they wanted to live their lives their own way, and they ripped apart their relationship with God. As a result, it was like a rip in the whole fabric of creation. Everything started falling apart. Have you ever wondered why it is we feel so instinctively that this world is not the way it's supposed to be? C.S. Lewis used to say that fish don't complain about water being wet. It's their natural environment. If there is no God and this world is, um, is all there is, then by definition, this world is already exactly the way it's supposed to be. It's our natural environment. So why do we complain about the world being wrong or evil or unjust? It doesn't make any sense unless it wasn't that way to begin with. And there's something deep inside of us that knows it. Friends, we know this world isn't the way it's supposed to be. How do we know that? It's like waking up from a dream, but you don't remember all the details, but the force of that dream stays with you. We know this world isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's like a dream half-remembered. So, act one, creation. Act two, rebellion. But that leads to act three in the story of the kingdom, redemption. Redemption simply means to win back something that was lost, in the Garden of Eden, our relationship with God was lost. Our, um, the goodness and, and the harmony of all of creation was lost. So the story of the kingdom is the story of God's relentless commitment to win it all back. 
So throughout the Bible, there's this constant promise that one day God is going to send a king who will rescue his people from evil and, and restore the world to the goodness, beauty, and perfection for which it was all created. The reason the story of the Bible is the story of the kingdom is because at the heart of this story is the king who redeems. And that leads to the fourth act in the story, renewal. The climax of the whole story is that one day God is going to renew all of creation. He's not going to destroy this world. He's going to renew this world. You realize that is a unique vision? As far as I've ever been able to discover, only the Bible says that God's ultimate vision for the world, and therefore our ultimate hope, is not to escape this world into some kind of disembodied existence, but, but the renewal of our bodies and the renewal of this world. That is a unique vision, and it makes sense when we remember the first act of the story, creation. God created this world good. He loves this world, and God is committed to this world. So even though the world is falling apart because of our rebellion, God's power and commitment to renew the world is infinitely greater than our capacity to ruin it. Because right now, this world is filled with pain, evil, and suffering. And it makes sense, therefore, that, that we would have this impulse within us to want to escape this world sometimes. That makes sense, but think about it. You know, this past year, you've been deprived of physical connection with other human beings. What's that been like? You know, our lives were already filled with screens, with our smartphones, our tablets, our televisions. This past year, um, you know, our lives are filled with what we call virtual reality, but this past year we've been forced to live on it. How's that worked out for us? It doesn't really sustain, does it? The reason is because virtual reality is just that. It's virtual. Virtual means almost but not quite real. Friends, here's the point. We were created as embodied creatures in a physical, material world. The promise of the kingdom is the promise that one day there's another world, a world beyond this world. A world of light, a world of love, justice, goodness, beauty, and truth. But the promise is not that we're going to get sucked out of this world and into that world. The promise is that that world is going to come and renew this world beyond anything we can imagine. For instance, many of the Psalms describe that world. There are places where it says, Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy. It says the rivers are going to clap their hands. What does that even mean? Someone might say, well, it's just a symbol. Yeah, but a symbol for what? Well, we don't even have language powerful enough to describe the reality of what God is going to do in this world. Friends, right now, it, it, the, the dream that we only half remember is, is somewhat alive in our heart, but one day it's going to come true. It's going to come and it's going to transform this world into the place we long for it to be. That's the story of the kingdom. And that leads to our next point, the substitute story of the kingdom. Because here's the thing. The story of the kingdom is a universal vision for the whole world. Whenever the Bible talks about this, it's always a multi-ethnic, multicultural vision for the whole world. But by the time Jesus showed up, that universal vision had gotten shrunk down to a very narrow, political, nationalist vision for Israel only. They had taken the original story of the kingdom and come up with a substitute story. It looked and sounded like the original, but it was a knockoff. Kind of like, you know, when you go to the discount store and you buy a handbag that looks and feels like a designer bag. 
or a pair of sneakers that looks and feel like real Air Jordans, but they're not real. It's a knockoff. It's an inferior substitute. That's what happened here. So throughout his ministry, one of the main things Jesus was doing was reforming and reshaping the original story of the kingdom in the hearts and lives of his followers because they didn't realize it, but they were under the influence of a substitute version of the story of the kingdom. Here's why this is so important for us. This world has never stopped producing substitute stories of the kingdom. And we don't realize it, but we're living under the influence of one of the most powerful substitute stories the world has ever devised. And I promised you last week that we were going to talk about it. What is it? Secularism. Now, that's a big subject with a variety of definitions. Many people think it just means separation of church and state. Or uh, when Christians talk about it, a lot of times they, they kind of had this adversarial tone that says, ooh, secularism is the enemy. Grr, secular, evil, nasty, vile, godless, atheist secularism. Grr. I don't actually think that's the most helpful way of thinking about this. First of all, because we all live under the influence of this story, including Christians. And I'll talk about that more in just a bit. But even more than that, that attitude prevents us from seeing just how much of the secular story really comes to us from the story of the kingdom. Because secularism is a story. And it goes like this. Once upon a time, people were enslaved and their minds were darkened by primitive beliefs in things like God, sin, salvation, and final judgment. But one day the light dawned. And now that Things like modern science and reason have entered into the world. We don't need God to explain the world. All we had to do was subtract things like superstitious beliefs and religious dogma and magical thinking, and we would be free to focus on things like universal love, human dignity, and making the world a better place. As if all of those things already existed here just waiting to be discovered, they didn't. The secular story. Have you ever wondered where our modern world gets this vision of progress? Where we get this vision of making the world a better place? It, th those things were not just there waiting to be discovered. It comes to us from the Bible. It comes to us from the story of the kingdom. The secular story, our secular story of progress, of universal love and human rights and being on the right side of history, that is not a new story. It's a substitute version of the kingdom story. And there are lots of historians and philosophers who are constantly pointing this out. By the way, many of them are atheists. It's not a bunch of Christian muckety-mucks pushing some agenda. It's just people being honest about history secularism has taken the story of the kingdom but gotten rid of the king. It says we don't need God to make the world a better place. If belief in God works for you, great, but you should keep that private where it belongs. It has no place in making the world a better place, no place in the kind of world that we're making together. So if you remember our story, you know, go back to the four acts we had. Um, it, um, secularism, in other words, says that, that what we do is we divide the world into private faith in one world and, and progress in the other world. F secularism says faith is private, progress is public. So like I just said, if, remember, if we go back to our story, remember there were four acts. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and renewal. One of the main effects of 
of, of the secular story in our culture has been to take, to extract those middle two acts, lop off the bookends, and create a wall of division between those two things. So it looks like this now. Up here, you have this private world of rebellion and redemption. It's always focused on human rebellion against God and, and, and the redemption of souls. Whereas down here, you have this public world that's focused on the bookends of this story, on progress and making the world a better place. That's what secularism has done in our world. It's created a division between those two things. So you ask any Bible-believing Christian, what's the gospel? Nine times out of ten, they're going to say, Jesus died to save us from our sins, which is true. Praise God. But notice how that statement is only focused on the two middle acts of the story, a rebellion against God and our need for redemption. It's lopped off the bookends of the story. And when we do that, we reduce the gospel to a private narrative about our own individual salvation that has nothing to do with the rest of the world. That is a capitulation to the secular story that says faith is private, progress is public. And by the way, um, the other side of this is that secularism says, look, we just want to focus on these two parts of the story, the creation and renewal, the progress and renewal. We don't want to focus on those two things. It's still a division between those two things. It says, look, if you have faith in God, that's wonderful, but the only legitimate faith is a faith that focuses only on making this world a better place. Don't bring in all that stuff about sin and salvation. It's still a division between those two things. That secularism has only focused on the other two aspects of the story. It ignores the human rebellion against God. It ignores our desperate need for redemption. And it'll never be able to make this world the place it's meant to be because it denies the main problem with the world in the first place. Now, what does all of that mean for us? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen the story of the kingdom. We've just seen the substitute story of the kingdom. But lastly, we need to see the embodiment of the kingdom. And we do that by going back to verse 33. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Now, by this time, I hope that you're beginning to see that this is not just some private command to seek a private faith that has nothing to do with the rest of this world. One of my big hopes for you from now on is that whenever you see this phrase, the kingdom of God, that you're going to be like any first century Jewish person. You're going to say, I know what that is. That's the main storyline of the Bible. The king is coming to make all things new. That is a very different understanding of the Bible than what perhaps many of us are used to. It's easy to think of the Bible as just like any other holy book or sacred text. You know, a set of instructions and principles. And if you do these things, then you will achieve salvation or nirvana or enlightenment or divine consciousness or whatever that particular religion says. But do you see the difference? Of course the Bible contains instructions and principles, but what is it primarily? It's not an instruction book. It's a storybook. It's the kingdom story. It's it's the history of all creation. It's the story of the whole world. It's not just a story about one group of people at one particular time in, in, in history and space. It's the history of creation. It's the story of the whole world. And at the heart of that story, the main character in the story is the king who makes all things new. Now, here's what this means for you and me. We all want to live the best lives we can, don't we? 
We all want to live a good life, a happy life, a free life, a full life. How do we do that? Here's how. If you want to know how to live your life, you need to know what kind of story you're in. If you want to know how to live your life, you need to know what kind of story you're in. One of my favorite pictures of this is a movie called Stranger Than Fiction. Will Ferrell plays an IRS agent named Harold Crick. One morning, Harold is brushing his teeth, and he hears a voice in his head, the voice of a British woman narrating his life. At first, he thinks it's some kind of a joke. He looks at his toothbrush, hello. (laughs) Then he thinks he's going crazy, but eventually he just gets used to it until one day the narrator in his head announces that he's about to die. At that point, Harold starts freaking out. He goes to a psychiatrist who says he has schizophrenia, but Harold says, well, what if I said was true? Hypothetically speaking, if I was part of a story, a narrative, what would you suggest I do? She says, I would suggest medication. Harold says, other than that. And she says, oh, I don't know. I suppose I would send you to somebody who knows something about literature. So Harold goes to the local university to see a a literary expert. And the expert says, well, listen, the first thing we got to do is figure out what kind of story you're in. Because if you're in a comedy, then you should act like this. But if you're in a tragedy, well, that's a very different kind of story. If that's the case, then you should act like this. The only way Harold Crick can figure out how to live his life is to figure out what kind of a story he's in. Friends, here's the question. What kind of a story are you in? The only way we'll know how to live our life is to know what kind of a story we're in. If the story you're in, if the story we're all in is the story of the kingdom, and it is, then what does that mean for our lives? How should we live? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, here's what this means. The kingdom, as we've seen, that's the story of what God is doing in this world. Righteousness is us learning to take our place in the story. The kingdom is what God is doing. Righteousness is our response to what he's doing. It's it's learning how to take our place in the story. And by the way, if you want to know what what does righteousness mean, the whole Sermon on the Mount, this whole sermon series we've been doing is one huge picture of what it looks like to live a righteous life. But here's the thing. The story's already going on. The story's already happening. The king has come once. The king will come again. The king has already come once. Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, has entered into his creation in order to win back, in order to redeem all of creation. Remember that word redemption. It means to win back something that was lost. You pay the price, you pay the cost, and you win it back. What was Jesus doing on the cross? He was seeking you. He was seeking the world. He was seeking the kingdom. He was seeking something that he lost. Jesus paid the price. He paid the cost to win it all back because he was seeking you. He was seeking creation. Friends, Jesus Christ, the the one through whom all things were created and the one in whom 
all things hold together was ripped apart so that all things could be reconciled and made new in him. We ripped apart our relationship with God. We ripped apart this world, and we've even ripped apart the material and the spiritual. But on the cross, Jesus Christ, the one in whom all things hold together, he was ripped apart so that we could be made new in him and so that all of the world could be made new in him. He's the king of the story. So here's the real question. Will you take your place in that story? Righteousness does not simply mean living a good life so that God will take you to heaven when you die. That's far too reductionistic a view of it. Righteousness means taking your place in the story that's already happening, the story of the kingdom. In other words, it's not that if you live a good enough life, a righteousness, a righteous enough life, that God will then, uh, you will earn God's love and redemption in your life. No. The gospel is that God has already poured out his love and his redemption through Jesus on the cross. That means that the way we live, our righteousness, is not a way of earning God's love and redemption, but of responding to his love and his redemption. You, if you want to know how to live your life, you need to know what kind of a story you're in. The gospel is the story of something that happened in history. It's not just a private faith. It's public truth for the whole world. So if you're a Christian, that means that we should resist and, and reject any idea that we should just relegate our faith to some private realm that has nothing to do with the rest of this world. It means that we enter into this world and we take our place in the story of this world. And if the heart of this story is the story of a king who sacrifices his love for others, especially his enemies, that means that we should drop the adversarial tone. We should drop the con condemnation. And especially if this story is a story about the renewal of all things, that means that Christians of all people should have far more incentive and motivation to love others, to care for the poor, to fight against injustice, to address oppression in this world. Way more incentive and motivation to do that than anyone else in the world because we're the ones that are living in the story. And if you are exploring faith this morning, then I would invite you to consider this. Are you seeking the kingdom but without the king? Do you have a vision for progress and renewal but it's a substitute version of the real story of the kingdom? I would invite you this morning to investigate this story, to explore this story even more deeply, not as a way of abandoning your goal for progress and renewal, but as a way of taking your place in the one and only true story that can accomplish the goal of that quest. Friends, one day the dream we only half remember now is gonna, it's gonna come alive, it's gonna come awake. The more you take your place in that story, the more the dream comes awake in you and through you to the world around you until the day that Jesus comes and makes all things new. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we praise you for your story, this story, the story of your kingdom. Not some imaginary story, but the true story of the whole world, the true universal story of all creation. We thank you, Father, that you love this world and, and are so committed to this world that you would not leave this world in the mess that we've made of it, but that you would come to this world in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. And on the cross, you, Lord Jesus, would have been ripped apart so that all things could be put back together in you. I pray this morning, Father, that, that you would help us who claim your name and claim to follow you to, to not divide this story in two 
to keep the whole story in place and to take our place in this story. Committed not just to spiritual renewal, but to social and cultural renewal, because that's what you're committed to. And I pray for those of us here this morning who are exploring this story. I pray that you would help help us all to see the true nature of this story, the true nature, the true roots of our yearnings for progress and renewal in, in in a truly better world, Lord. Father, help us all to take our place in this story, because you are the king of the story and the one who has accomplished it all through Jesus Christ, our Lord. For we pray it all in his name. Amen.